Welcome to episode two of the Ace Tone Sessions. I'm your host, Tim Whalen. My guest today is Washington, D.C.-based guitarist Paul Piper. Paul is one of the most respected musicians in the area, and when you hear him play, you'll understand why. He gained prominence in 1995 when he took second place out of over 200 people at the Thelonious Monk International Jazz Guitar Competition. In 2007, he started the Jazz Workshop, a music school in Northern Virginia dedicated to teaching students of all abilities how to play jazz in a group setting. I'm honored that he's here, and I'm so glad that you're here. So sit back, relax, and enjoy episode two of the Ace Tone Sessions.
So you grew up in Falls Church. I did. I grew up uh, right here in the D.C. area. And, of course, D.C. has always been a great music town. There's always been so much great stuff to hear here. Uh, I was lucky early on to hook up with a fantastic guitar teacher. Uh, who That's really how I got exposed to jazz in the first place, through my teacher, Mike Bevan, who's still here in the area. And uh, once I got to be about 19 or 20, I was able to start uh, doing a little bit of gigging around town and uh, most of my education has really come from playing with people around here. Uh, I didn't go to music school per se. I went to one year of Mary Washington College in Fredericksburg, which for whatever uh, wonderful features it might have is not really a jazz powerhouse. You know, uh, uh, I enjoyed my time there, but uh, what I've learned about playing music, I really have learned it mostly from my private studies with Mike and then just from the practical perspective of gigging. Um, Which is really, I mean... Well, I think that's how it's always been done. I think the whole thing of learning in a music school is a sort of a newer phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And frankly, it's something I've always kind of... Uh, you know, if I could go back and maybe take a few classes in like four-part writing or something, that would have been a great thing. But sure. it's hard to, to feel like I've missed too much getting to play with the incredible musicians who have come through D.C. and who have always been here. And getting to learn directly from them. So that's that's been the, the way it's worked for me. Yeah, and you know, me being new to D.C., it's uh, just as much as in New York or Chicago. I mean, the, the level of history of that type of a tradition here is, is you're, just, you're just following along that path. Um, so I could imagine, like you said, just... The opportunities of you know various musicians that you'd meet here it had to be quite a thrill as a young player sure i mean i think i was lucky to get to be in a in a town like dc it's just a great jazz town and there's mm -hmm. a strong community here so uh it's been a great place to learn and grow over the last 20 years yeah and it seems uh it's just, obviously it's a, it's a large city that's true but there is a aspect which i'm sure people watching that are part of this community here there is an aspect of a it's almost like a small town feel within a large city which i've you don't you don't sometimes get that in in other cities but especially here i've found it's a very close-knit community of people um and uh i just think that that would help foster that tradition of uh, kind of just learning on the job and and these types of things. I think that's true. Yeah, the, the community here is incredible and has always been. Uh, and it's certainly not a huge city like a New York or L.A. Right. So uh, it's it's got a, a great kind of a local flavor. Right. Uh, and I think people approach jazz here maybe a little differently than somewhere like New York. It, there's kind of a more grounded scene here, a little more mm -hmm. of a traditional thing, which I think is not bad. Right. You know, that as I get older and play more and more, I'm certainly just finding that one thing I value in a lot of players when I hear them, no matter how forward-looking they might be, is some connection to something, something that feels authentic and grounded and like they've got some history in their playing. And uh, I think that's always something that DC musicians have. So that's very cool. So in 95, I read, you did the Monk competition, which is mostly done here in dc or it definitely was in the beginning i think they do it 
in other locations now. Here but it there. was originally I think it was done, LA last year, maybe, right? Yeah. Yeah. But it originated as a as a DC based thing, as far as I know. Was that the first monk guitar competition that you did? Or do you know? It it was, as far as I remember. And it's interesting, actually, that that year it was a guitar slash bass competition. Okay. And they basically ran two competitions. I see. And I, I honestly think that the reason they did that was because they felt like neither guitar nor bass was sufficiently interesting on, on the... I think that was the rationale. What a, what a, Which, what a know, classic I, stereotype. Well, I mean, that's that's how it goes, right? <laughs> and of course, in I think in 2005, they had guitar by itself. Oh, oh. So apparently we've, well, entered the, it. we've entered the mainstream yeah, now. Jazz it, guitar yeah. is here to stay. <laughs> but I, I can't complain. It was actually kind of cool. You know, one of the nice things about that was that I got to meet all those musicians who right. were there, sure. uh, guitarists and bassists. And I'm still following the fortunes of many of the people who I met yeah, uh, back in '95 there, and it's neat to see what people have done out in the world. Who who were your judges when you did it? Do you remember? Wow. Well, that was the heaviest thing about it. I, I mean, can they imagine. always kind of assembled this incredible group of people. So, uh, one of them was my primary influence on the guitar, which is John Schofield. I mean, so that alone would have been crazy. And but they also had Pat Metheny, <laughs> Jim Hall, uh, Pat Martino, and Mark Whitfield. Okay, so like a who's who. Yeah, and I was really grateful not to actually physically be able to see those people while I was playing in the, right. in the thing, because that would have been terrible. It wasn't a blind thing, was it just because of the stage lights? Or yeah, was it, okay. and they, I think they were way in the back right. somewhere. so they weren't like right in your face. Of course, face. they might have not even been in the building for all I know, but that's that's <laughs> what sure I was they told. Were. They were the judges, yeah. <laughs> so that was heavy. And I remember for the, back in 95, you had to submit a cassette tape. You can Google that, kids, if you're yeah. not sure what that means. <laughs> what are those? You had to submit a cassette tape, and I think those judges were Jack Wilkins, Gene Bertoncini. Uh, oh, and I can't remember the third. Ugh, don't remember. But yeah, so they had separate guys judging this 200-some tapes that they got for that stuff. You know, just not to, I don't want to um, put you on the spot too much, but I, I would just be curious... Um, I've done a few competitions, you know, in a way it it is what it is. But the Hmong competition is a big deal. Mm. Um, And you were a semifinalist, weren't you? Yeah, second place. Okay, so that's, I mean, second place, that's incredible. And, of course, I'm not surprised. I mean, none of us are surprised. We all know how you play. Um, I'd just be curious to hear if you can kind of time travel a little bit back. What... What was going through your mind during this whole process? Were you just kind of taking it as it comes? Were you nervous? Were you, um, or were you just really just happy to be there? Like, because some people, you know, how depending on a personality, somebody could be a nervous wreck about it, and they don't even remember the whole process because they were so concerned about winning. Or some other people could just be like, you know, whatever. I'm here. I'm just gonna kind of play like it's a gig. I, I'd be curious to know what. What was going through your head, if you remember? Sure. Well, you know, in those days, I guess this was all before email and anything. Uh, right. So I found out about the competition, I think, at a full-page ad in Downbeat magazine. So that was interesting. This is all so old school, man. Very old school. Just sort of finding out <laughs> that way and then, you know, submitting a tape and getting a phone call to be notified that I'd been... I remember I was in the kitchen and I got this call that I'd been selected to be a semifinalist. And that was pretty mind-blowing uh i was i think it was all of those things i mean i was very nervous to be involved in that i think the rhythm section they had was that you were supposed to play with as in a trio 
and it was Scott Colley and um, Kenny Washington on drums. <laughs> so that alone, I, I just enjoyed that. That I, alone, I had never really played with a rhythm section that was like that, and I right. knew who those guys were, and it was just such a heavy thing. Sure. Um, I, I liked the whole experience. You know, it was it was pretty mind blowing. I was twenty two, twenty three, and had never really done much of anything that felt big. Right. And I definitely had the feeling that this was not the time to try to reinvent myself or to to practice and try some whole new approach that was going to dazzle people or something. I, right. I felt like all I could do was get up and do what I did. Yeah. And fortunately, the tunes. You know, I, I don't remember exactly what they wanted you to play. I. It was definitely like play a standard and play something else, and it was pretty prescribed. Sure, you had to. I think that's changed a little. I think I think in recent competitions they've had people bring an original and all these different. Okay, but anyway, so it wasn't like an infinite set of variables. Uh, I remember it was the nine people, and we all had to play, and after that it was whittled down to three, uh, and. Uh, being selected for that was totally mind blowing. Just the right. thought that I'd made it that far. Yeah. And uh, I was definitely more nervous for the final one for the, cause that was at the Kennedy center and they had Billy D Williams announcing and stuff. And it really felt like the big time, you know? Uh, so that, that was, it was pretty hard to just relax and do whatever. But uh, you know, I got up and did, did the best I could played the way I played and uh, and it it worked out. I was I would have been happy to place anywhere in there, just to get any kind of recognition was nice. That was really the first time in my life that anybody had ever said like that I'd gotten. It it just felt good to get some validation, I guess. Yeah. And it was nice to kind of get a pat on the head and say you're doing okay. Right. So it, and it's always been a, kind of a resume item, I guess, of which course. can be a little hard to come by in music. You know, sometimes. Uh, since then, I've had to fill out an application for this or that, and it'll say, list any awards or prizes you've received. And it's nice to be able to pull that out. Of course. And the Monk organization, the the Monk Institute, is a, a great organization. I think they've done a lot for jazz, and they've raised the visibility, and they've maintained this incredible competition as well. Right. You know, every so often, too, people will say, like, I don't think music is about competition, and they'll these sort of platitudes about how music shouldn't be a competitive thing, but... On the other hand, this is an event that raises the profile of jazz, mm-hmm. something else that the New York Times tends to write about when mm-hmm. it happens. And, yes. You know, this is all good for jazz, just to get people excited about young musicians. And I think, I think the competitive aspect of it is overstated. I, I think that's a construct that people understand, but I just experienced it as a really positive thing. And uh, I think everybody who was involved in it, whether they placed or not, felt like they were recognized and uh, like it was kind of a step forward for people. It was an incredible networking thing. I mean, I got sure. to meet Pat Metheny and yeah. Schofield and these guys. And, you know, so I, I have no complaints about the way any of it was done. I thought it was an incredible experience. And uh, uh, I'm just so grateful to have that have been a part of my life. All right. So my favorite part of, of doing this whole thing um, is being able to play music that a guest brings in. Um, it's just, it's always a thrill to play new music. Um, and this series is becoming a nice vehicle for that. So you brought in a great tune, Mana B. And uh, I just, every tune has a story. So I'd be just curious to know what the story is behind that composition and kind of where it came from. Absolutely. Uh, 
I've been lucky enough to do some traveling before, uh, playing music. One of the first places I ever went was Ecuador, and I really loved it. I studied Spanish for five or six years in school, and uh, I should be better at it now than I am after all that time. But I've always really enjoyed it, and Ecuador was just so great. You know, the first place we went was Quito, and it's way up in the mountains, and it's incredible. And then we uh, went down to the coast and just saw so much of the country, and it was really beautiful. I've heard it's gorgeous there. Yes, and we got to drive around a little bit too. So uh, we spent some time in a region of Ecuador called Manabí. And uh, I just loved the place. I loved the people. Um, and I, I wanted to write something that kind of reflected some of the, what I felt was the character of the place. And that tune was sort of, it was something I, um, I've tried writing tunes and sitting down with a piece of blank paper and just staring at it. And that's, uh, that's a hard way to go, I think. So I started experimenting. Again, this was before uh, everybody had a cell phone all the time. Right. I bought a little portable recorder, a little hard disk recorder, and I would just go on walks and sing stuff into this recorder. And Manabi was one of these tunes where just on a walk, I was just singing stuff. And uh, after a few fits and starts, most of that melody is just something that I sang through. Sure. Um, and it's interesting that it, it sort of came out in a fairly conventional song structure. Uh, I guess I've been fairly well indoctrinated by uh, song structure in jazz. You know, we have these forms that we use, but uh, but stylistically, I mean, it really it's yeah it, 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 it fits up, the mood of where you were. I feel like sure, sure. Well, it's a long flowing lyrical kind mm-hmm. of melody, and sure. that's I think when you just sing something, I like the results you get. Sometimes you don't Definitely. have an opportunity to think and be clever right. in quite the same way, maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what comes out, hopefully, is something honest that you're actually hearing. Right. You have to hear it because you're singing it. Yeah. So, uh, uh, yeah, it has it has that kind of flavor to it. And I felt like it captured something about what I, what I felt like when I was there. And just the excitement of being in a new place and getting to experience something new. So that's what that song is all about for me. Um, uh, it's supposed to sound optimistic and bright and uh, has some of the joy of that region. Uh, it certainly does, and it's, it's a lot of fun to play over. Yeah, well, and you played it great. Well. You know, a song like that, There's when you play guitar and piano, of course, you have to kind of agree on the rhythmic presentation all the time. Yeah. And that was an interesting thing to try to pull together, mm-hmm. but I think, I think it came off real nice. Yeah, that was just a beautiful tune. Cool.
So earlier we were talking about learning this music and education. Um, you have a school that you've started. I do. Uh, back in 2007, I started this thing called the Jazz Workshop. And uh, I've been doing that now, I guess, wow, it's almost nine years, something like that. Amazing. Yeah, back then I was teaching guitar lessons and uh, I was enjoying it, but I also felt like I wanted to do something a little different. I felt like I wanted to work with people on all instruments, not just guitar. And I felt also like what I might be really well equipped to do was help people get a small group jazz skill set. And there's a lot that's involved in that. If you want to play jazz in a group, you have to not only know about improvisation, but you have to know what to do and when to do it. Uh, if you're talking about comping, playing chords on piano or guitar, there's kind of a style and a way to do that. And helping people shape and discover that and make progress in that, how you voice chords, the rhythm that you play them, and just what to do from start to finish in a jazz performance. Right. I think sometimes for a lay person who comes out and sees a jazz group play, they're not necessarily aware of all the subtle cues that are happening, mm -hmm. all the little things. You know, if somebody who's been playing music for a long time, you take these things for granted. But sometimes this is, uh, these are difficult skills for, for beginners to learn. But uh, in the jazz workshop, we actually work with all different levels of, of musician. Uh, we have people who've been playing jazz for 30 years uh, who are just looking for a place to play, uh, and a place to continue to grow, kind of an ongoing education kind of way. So my goal with the workshop is to, to have an ideal setting where people can come in and play music at the same time each week, be matched up with others at their same level in a, kind of a guided and moderated setting where I or another instructor are there to kind of help them have an optimal experience and also to lend our expertise and knowledge and help people uh, kind of do the right thing. You know that if you get on a gig with a group, it's pretty common experience as jazz musicians to play with people you've never met before. Right. And you need to be able to know what, what the norms do. are. Yeah. You know, there's there's a way to play that's yeah. going to work mm -hmm. and a way that really isn't. And it's hard to know that all the time. Mm -hmm. So these are all things that people can learn in the jazz workshop. But most importantly, it's a, a place for people to play jazz, which is also not easy to come by out in the world. If yeah, especially if you're just wanting to continue your love of it. Sure, of course. You yeah. might not have access to a community of right. people. If you're it's a sax outlet. player, you might not just have a piano player and a bassist and a drummer that you right. can call up. And that's part of what we're doing. We're putting people together, giving them a place to play, and guiding them to make the kind of progress they want to make. So we've grown over the years to where we have 17 sessions that meet each week. It's incredible. And man. almost 80 people involved in that. And we're growing all the time. Yeah. And as we do, I'd like to be able to offer more and more to people um, different kinds of guidance, um, not only uh, playing in the workshop, but also providing performance opportunities out in the community, in clubs, bringing in guest artists, um, all kinds of different things to help people really live a jazz life, I guess. So well, it's been well, cool. It's interesting because it, it kind of goes along with what you were talking about when we first started, just talking about your upbringing. And it's, I think, really exemplifying this uh, tradition of learning by doing. Um, right. It's, it's, you're, it's not on a, they're not on a gig, although sometimes I know you do have, you do like a jazz workshop night at a, at a, at a, at a venue somewhere in town. But even at the sessions, 
they're still learning by doing. And so it's right. in, in a lot of ways they're getting, um, from what I can tell, uh, a real world type experience. Like, no, you don't want to do this here. Right. You know, it may not be like, uh, you know, the, um, the less friendly confines of certain, you know, jam sessions that people have been to or whatever. But right. this is, it's still in that vein of, no, you don't want to do that. You, you, this is, this is something you might want to explore here. Or, uh, you know, I, I noticed you did this at this part of this tune. You might want to think about this. Exactly. Rather than, you know, you play this set of notes over this chord. It's, it, it, that's probably part of it too, but I, I get the feeling this is, it's more of a, um, real kind of, you learn it as you do it, and you're, 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 it's very real world to me in a lot of ways. Right. It's important for a jazz musician to develop reflexes, sure. where in the moment when you're presented with a certain stimulus, you right. react the right way. Right. And you can't, that's not a textbook thing. You don't learn that from being told what to do in, in every case. Right. You have to get in an environment and have things thrown at you, which is playing in a jazz group, right? People are always throwing things at you. You have to learn how to react and to react the right way. And that's really what mainstream jazz is all about. I'm all for the idea of somebody going out and doing something that's completely original, reinventing jazz, doing something that's new and fresh. But there's also a benefit if you're going to go to the jam session at the local club when sit in with a bunch of jazz musicians, there is a way to do things. Right. And a lot of what we're trying to do in the workshop is help people learn what that is. Great. Uh, and also have a lot of fun while doing it. Yeah. Explore the repertoire. And, you know, maybe most importantly, just give people a place where they know they're going to get to play every week for as long as they want. We've had people in the workshop for six or seven years in some cases. So it's really, uh, I joke with my wife sometimes that what we've created is kind of a jazz dojo. Where I, people that's can a great come, word for it. People can come and practice their art yeah. form practice the discipline of jazz and it's a safe spot it's a safe place it's a safe spot where really we we honor everybody who comes in the door there all that we ask is that people want to play jazz for Mm -hmm. real but whether they've never played before or been playing for 30 years uh, it's a home for everybody who wants to do it it's a it's a really wonderful thing um and i guess i'll just kind of finish up saying that i i was at the workshop um and i got to see the interaction between you and the students and you can tell that they are genuinely thrilled to be there to be able to play just to have an outlet to play i think that's just it's a real great thing sure well i am too it's a it's a privilege to get to work with people like that and i love that a lot of my professional life now is playing music with people uh in that setting and getting to kind of be at the center of that community it's amazing yeah. So I'm enjoying it, and I think I'll be doing it forever in one way or another.
The practice of music is something that can give shape to your whole life. It's something that you never perfect, which I think is an interesting metaphor for life in general. For me, it's given me a community of people as well. And I think the most important thing in life is your relationships with other people. It's just part of the practice of living and something that gives meaning and shape to your life. And uh, I'm grateful for all of those things. I can't imagine what my life would be like if I didn't have music in it.